The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. summer sun would have been bright. Dark shadows cut out of lone trees, crossing the prairie with the day. A sundial telling not only the time, but direction. However, the salt of the earth tends to take their order from goodness alone, whose values stretch back generations, which undoubtedly the settlers depended upon as they huddled together, sharing dwindling stockpiles of corn and grain and what rabbit meat remained. They sowed the earth in the spring, hunted together in the summer months in wolf-infested forests, kept each other's backs from wild beast attacks, to Indian raids, civil wars, pandemics and famine. In the midst of daylight, the darkness of shadow cuts deep, but with any luck, folks come together in the autumn to reap the earth of their labors and celebrate feasts that would hopefully strengthen their demeanor, willful bodies and souls to carry on through the harsh winter once more, and the whole cycle to begin again. This unity, this goodness, cultivating itself from the land, that people might and have indeed come to depend upon for not only survival, but a sense of human dignity, that one might have each other's back, faith in others, salt, of the earth. At a century and a half, and in the summer of 1992, Harold Fisher undoubtedly did not have to think twice about his moral direction when he checked the Duracell battery 
and the smoke detector above the door leading into the bathroom from the kitchen, ensuring it would still work before leaving his late mother's apartment once and for all. Harold had moved all of her things out of the home now that she had passed, having lived there for years until her death. The apartment was warm with her lingering presence and that of the Indian summer. And in the winter, the overactive boiler, which had lent her to keep a window cracked open even during those frigid months, made for a toasty home year-round. The plaster was loose on the wall beside her bed, caused by water damage during the tornado of 75. And there were cracks in the living room under the wallpaper, from where water had seeped in through the ceiling tile. Harold glanced around at the apartment, where he had invested his own labor and money, as the bank had been reluctant to invest in the upkeep of the property that it held in a trust. Harold, having checked the smoke detector, despite the fact he would never set foot in his mother's apartment again, walked away assured, believing that he had done what was right by him, without thinking, as his best was to have the back of the next tenant who would move in, whomever it might be. Some weeks later, Trust Officer David Haynes, who managed the address at 365 South 1st Avenue, stopped by and let himself in with a key to check things out before the next tenant moved in. But what David had not done was check the smoke detector. Meanwhile, 30-year-old Donna Tompkins, having recently left her husband John, was living at 207 South 1st Avenue, just a couple blocks to the north. Carrying a toddler up and down the stairs to her second-story apartment had grown burdensome and struggling financially as a single parent. She wanted a ground-floor apartment that was a bit easier on the wallet and the back. Trust Officer David Haynes, her boss at the National Bank of Canton, told her the apartment at 365 had recently opened up and was available if she wanted it, nudging Donna to take it. And as he told her if she did the yard work, he'd give her a discount. Kim, the landlord at 207, offered to lower the rent and match the place at 365, but ultimately she could not change Donna's mind. Donna had been one of Kim and her husband's best tenants, and they hated to see her go. But in October of 92, Donna moved out with the help of her boyfriend, Rod Franciscovich, and his roommate, Scott Roop. Her new residence was on the south side of an old two-story Victorian home, sectioned off into four apartments, two upstairs and two down. On the ground floor, Donna's porch looked out upon a reasonably sized yard, bordered by a set of old rusty tracks, which divided the address from a gravel alleyway lined with brick warehouse buildings. The freight train tracks came into town from the rural farmland to the west, where Donna had previously lived with her husband John on the Tompkins family farm. The tracks passed Donna's new apartment in the center of town, and they continued on to the shuttered International Harvester factory, just a block east of her new home. Donna had traded her electric stove to Kim for a gas one, and Rod and Scott struggled to get it in through the door. Rod then hooked it up and tested it for leaks using dish soap, and they carried in a daybed Donna had brought in off the farm that belonged to John and placed it in the kitchen. She decorated it with pillows as Rod put a TV against the northern wall onto a homemade blue bookcase with drawers. They moved a twin bed to the back bedroom where Justine would sleep alone, and Donna pushed her beloved sewing machine against the wall 
to the right just as you entered, between the corner and the kitchen door. Scott dropped Justine's toys in the corner. As the guys left, sweaty and ready for a stiff drink, Donna thanked them and gave Rod a big hug and a kiss. She shut the entry door, which was mostly glass, doorknob on the left as she locked it, and she hung a sheer curtain in the door window and left a heavy shade open to let in what was left of the light of day. Donna's purse sat on the sewing machine table, which would go on to serve as a catch-all, and Donna walked to the stove and turned the dial to warm up a can of soup, but it would not light. And with a chill in the autumn air, she noticed the boiler was neither working. She called up David, who told her he would call Luker Plumbing and have them come repair a problem with the thermostat, and from then on, Donna would have to keep a window cracked into the winter to let it cool down, and she barely wore anything at home, just to keep from sweating to death. Donna placed the oversized glasses she despised but wore to work and to read the fine print on a small table beside the daybed. She stood in the small living room separated from Justine's bedroom by a walk-through bathroom and decided what she needed was a couch. Donna plugged in the answer machine and recorded a new message as a testament to new beginnings. Feeling satisfied with her new home, she took a deep relieving breath and smiled, but Donna noticed something she'd overlooked, a small envelope on the kitchen counter. She grabbed her glasses and opened it, and read what turned out to be a handwritten letter from Rod, expressing his love lust that overcame him. How he cherished her, respected her, understood her, vowing to do all he could to go at the pace she demanded. After all, all he wanted to do was make her happy, he pledged, and maybe if he was lucky, they might one day have a family together. But Donna feared rushing into things so hastily. However, she cherished Rod in his warmth and thoughtfulness, and she held the letter to her pounding heart, head shook in disbelief. For all she had been through, she could not believe where she was heading. A future she had dreamt of. A man who not only adored her, but who was gentle and kind. Money was tight for Donna, and though she shared a child with John, he was not helpful financially. And though Donna had found a cheaper place, she felt she needed to take on a part-time job, tending bar weekends at the local Elks Club. Her ex-boyfriend Terry Haynes had hired her while they were still dating, but since, the relationship had fizzled out, snuffed by Terry's drinking, drug use, and violent outbursts. Things had gotten out of hand, and when she met Rod, she left Terry. Terry had become abusive, and after leaving her rocky marriage, Donna was fed up with violence. This was one reason why she was so happy with Rod, she told Iona Price, her co-worker at the Elks. Though she and Rod were just friends, she insisted, stating she was not in a hurry to rush back into things with anyone, not after John, and certainly not after Terry. Since working with Iona, Donna quickly warmed up to her. Yona was down to earth, easygoing, kind-hearted and trusting. Donna felt she could be herself around Yona and knew she would not be judged when she lit up a marble light she'd stepped in the back to smoke, out of sight of the officers from the National Bank, including Max Scott and Trust Officer David Haynes, who had stopped in to play cards on the late Sunday afternoon. The mainstay of Donna's income, the bank had strict standards when it came to code, and Donna had to present her best self not only at work as a secretary to the Trust Officer, but when she served him drinks at the Elks, because word always got around, an image preceded everything. The more time Yona spent with Donna, the more she could sense the turmoil inside of her. Yona felt there was something within Donna crying to be set free. She embraced Donna not only as a friend, but as a willing confidant, and Donna's whispering voice within called out, whose voice was growing stronger by the day, 
And Iona also noticed that Donna, a sort of double life, was blooming. Donna had to project absolute professionalism, confidence, and demeanor in one world. While at the Elks, specifically in the company of Yona, Donna could undo her top button, let her hair down, and breathe. She could loosen that noose around her heart, express her worries, fears, and insecurities. Donna could vent how tired she was of the letters and cards Terry left for her everywhere, expressing his undying love. But what Donna feared most was that this ongoing fixation and obsession Terry had with her, one wholly unhealthy, was potentially dangerous. As all the while Terry was professing his love, he was calling her horrible names behind her back, incessantly bad-mouthing her as she rejected him for Rod. Terry hated Rod, and he fumed with jealousy and resentment. Though Donna and Terry had to work together at the Elks, Yona could serve as a buffer of sorts between the two. Yona knew that Donna was from an entirely different world than Canton. Though being from the East Coast did offer her a certain amount of worldliness, in true essence, Donna was naive and too trusting. Yona knew Donna had been dating numerous men, including some who were married at the time, and of the potential threats that lurked about. Yona felt a motherly instinct to protect Donna, not only from the realities of life on this frontier, but of all that remained utterly imperceptible to the shining jewel many saw Donna to be. An angel too pure for this world. Certainly the Inland Empire. Sought after for her rarity, praised for her shine. But Donna had a flaw. A weakness that allowed time and time again darkness to seep into her life through the cracks. In a sense, Yona was the friend Donna never had and exactly the friend we all need. That one genuine, special someone who can draw the realness out of our souls to the surface. To be there in times of tears and times of joy. To mourn and to celebrate. And after work, the two would let loose and crack jokes at the bar over cigarettes. Over the cards, Yona would draw out. Turn over, peering into fortune and future. And after the officers had gone home, the weirdos from the bank, as Donna referred to them, the two could finally let loose. Yana knew that John was always running Donna down. As Donna switched from Miller Lite to Canadian Mist and Diet, Yana had Donna's back and invited her to grab a bite to eat before the liquor went to her head, or possibly to her heart. Donna was looking awfully thin after all. Possibly stress, the ongoing divorce, not eating right, or the thyroid issue she had been struggling with recently. The two ended up a barbecue roundup on the south side of town, where the speckling of homes turned gradually industrial, sheet metal and gravel, and then swiftly rural, where the blacktop ran parallel to a set of tracks, carrying on into the Midwestern horizon. The two sat at a booth near a man Iona recognized, Donnie Bull, who sat with his new girlfriend Rochelle Hillemeyer and longtime pal David Nell. Donnie worked at Wright's Furniture with Iona's husband Mike Price, and remembering that Donna wanted a couch, she introduced her to Donnie. Donnie told Donna it just so happens he had inherited a sofa bed from his mother, who had died just last Halloween. And immediately Rochelle stared daggers into this beautiful woman whose big brown eyes lit up the room. Donnie stared up in absolute awe at the angel that had manifested right here in Barbecue Roundup just before him. 
300 bucks and it's yours. He'd even deliver it for her. Donna was thrilled and the two shook on it. It was a deal. As Yona and Donna settled back in at their table, waiting on their drinks, Iona spotted Donna giving Donnie long, flirty look over her shoulder, and Iona leaned forward and whispered, Don't ever let that man in your apartment if you're alone, you hear me? But Donna shrugged it off as she thanked the waiter for her Canadian mist and diet, giving Donnie another blushed smile as Rochelle dug her elbow into his ribs. Returning to work at the bank Monday morning, Donna was asked to see Officer Max Scott in his office. Mr. Scott informed Donna that he and the other officers were concerned about her Sunday shifts bartending at the Elks, as they might interfere with her duties on Monday mornings at the bank. Donna was taken aback, confused, and disappointed, as she realized there was no bargaining room, and what was being spoken was being said between the lines. It would be appreciated if she did carry on at the Elks to simply serve tables. It was classier. Bartending was not an acceptable role for any employee. It was below them. After all, many wealthy members of the community held their life savings and trust at the bank, and they must be able to see in the character of those responsible for their livelihoods that their money is in good, clean hands. With these demands clearly on Donna's mind, assaulting that inner self that already felt so strangled, Donna on the exterior threw on that warm smile, though feigned, that smile the client so adored. Donna needed to blow off some steam that night and called up Yona, got a babysitter and went over to her house for a few beers. Those damn creeps at the bank, they were driving her up a wall. Yona's husband Mike was there too, and knowing Donnie had a thing for Donna, called him up. And when Donna heard that Mike had invited Donnie over, and then filled up with that wondrous feeling of butterflies fluttering about. And as Donnie arrived with a six-pack of Bud Light, Donna squirmed on the couch cushions and battered her eyes back in his direction. The sexual tension in the air could have been cut with a knife, as it was thick and everyone could sense it. Donnie was a handsome man after all, well-built, stacked with muscles from moving furniture with Mike, and stints in the county jail weight room where he'd stack every plate and impress the other inmates with his sheer strength. Donnie had a head of dark hair, sideburns, and a thick mustache. He was a man's man, and it was no wonder Donna could not keep her eyes off of him. And Donna? Well, she was a beaut, there was no question about that. Italian, exotic in Donnie's eyes, long, anxious legs that built up static on the cushions, glistening lips that sipped away on whiskey. Donnie may have had a body that men die for. He might have told Mike and his other buddies that all women want him. Still, on the inside, Donnie was little more than a child, emotionally stunted, and thought to be dim-witted and awkward by most he'd grown up with. Donnie was a Canton boy, Donna, an East Coast implant. And Donnie had never seen anything like her. And as he sipped on his beer, avoiding the whiskey that would make him hallow the moon, he gathered the liquid courage he'd need to move over and plop down next to her. But hell, Donna didn't mind. She ate it up. And as the four laughed and joked and threw back their drinks and smoked away, speaking their minds without restraint, without boundaries, with no officers lurking about, no rules, no code, no conduct, Donna was alive and had never felt so free.
on Halloween. Donna arrived home to see a tweed sofa bed in our living room. She had left half the money in the mailbox wrapped around a spare key so Donnie could let himself in. Donna smiled as she ran her fingertips along its woolen thread. She called Wright's furniture to thank Donnie, but Donnie was already gone for the day. So she decided to stop by his apartment to thank him, pay him the other half of the money, and show him her Halloween outfit and Mickey Mouse costume. brick sidewalk outside of Donna's apartment, covered in fallen leaves, crunched and rambled upon by an army of monsters, devils, and demons coming for candy. And as the night wore on and the kids all headed home to spoil their sweet tooth, Donna left the porch light on for Rod as he said he'd stop by after work. She gave Justine a bath, scrubbed the costume makeup off her face, and tucked her in before returning to the living room. She pulled out the sofa bed which was topped with a foam mattress dressed it in sheets and a flowered comforter, threw on a few pillows she had taken from John's daybed. Then she lay down and tucked herself in, had one less cigarette, and fell asleep to the steam whistle of the radiator. At 10 p.m., Rod Franciscovich left work at Office Max in Peoria. He made the hour drive home at night looking for any deer that might jump out of a ditch in the dark countryside. He arrived home at 11, took a shower, cleaned up, changed clothes, and made a quick bite to eat before heading over to Donna's, somewhere between 1 and 1.30 in the morning. Arriving at the old Victorian by the tracks, he turned off his headlights as he pulled into the driveway and parked his truck in the back out of sight. The door was locked as usual, so he knocked lightly until he roused Donna from her slumber. She was happy to see him, and he her. Rod undressed and crawled onto the sofa bed beside Donna, who wore little to nothing as the boiler heat was stifling. They talked for an hour or so as they smoked, and Rod asked her if Terry had called her again or stopped by. Rod wanted reassurance that the two were going to commit. After all, he had caught himself a trophy, and he started showing signs of the discomfort that comes with such a catch. Donna promised not to see anyone else, and they began to kiss and caress, and Rod reached over and turned off the lamp on the small table beside the couch. The night was short, and Donna's alarm went off at 6 a.m. sharp. The two shared a cup of coffee before Donna woke Justine, who was cranky in the morning. She cried and threw a tantrum as Rod helped to fold up the sofa bed. Rod noticed that Donna did little to punish Justine for misbehaving. He thought to tell her how he would handle it if Justine was his child, but he bit his tongue and finished his coffee. A few days later, Donna was not herself at work, and she asked her boss David if he would mind watching Justine again that evening. David and his wife Sarah had watched the little one a few times over the past year. Though Sarah had been jealous of Donna and David's past, and those pesky rumors that kept surfacing, the two bonded when Donna's mother was dying of cancer. Her and Sarah chatted on the phone as Sarah had been through something very similar. Sure, said David, no problem at all. His own three-year-old daughter was the same age as Justine after all. Donna had held her nerves together the best she could that day, but the seams were starting to part, and she barely made it home and dialed her sister Susan on the phone before the dam holding back her emotions 
crumbled and broke loose. Her period was late, she told Susan, who sat on the other end of the line in a different time zone. All Donna had managed to push down to hold hostage inside was erupting across that long-distance call. She was scared out of her mind. The last thing in the world Donna wanted was another child. To Donna at that moment, despite her love for Justine, another child meant more of a struggle, more poverty, more failed relationships, and possibly more violence. And certainly more shackles, more dreams that would spill through her fingers like sand. Like the sand that already poured through the hourglass. As Donna sensed that her time was running out, and her opportunities were dwindling. That she would be nothing but a failure to her father. That she would never be able to live up to his expectations. And that she would yet again disappoint him. Her sister Susan did her best to calm Donna. But Donna was shaken to her core. And when Rod arrived that night a little after one, as he knocked lightly, Donna was lying there wide awake. She could not sleep. And when she opened the door, Rod was surprised to see her in a robe. A robe he had tried to disrobe from her body after they had shared a smoke. But Donna stopped him as he grew excited, craving that playboy model. She had long been deemed to possess by the men of Canton. Stop, stop, wait, I need to tell you something. We need to talk. Rod was taken back and perplexed as all of his own fears jumped out in front of him like a deer on the night highway. As his eyes reflected shock, he asked, Was it Terry, John, another man? No, no, I'm late. You're what? My period, it's late, said Donna with a trembling lip. Had Rod not seen the initial problem? Yes, an unexpected child might disrupt things. But was it really an accident? She had let him make love to her unprotected after all. And also, they had committed to one another. Things were moving forward, he felt. A future together was on the horizon, a family, maybe a baby, perhaps even marriage. Wait. What happened to taking it slow? After all Donna had been through, I don't know if I'm ready. No, I'm not ready. What happened to understanding? We cannot do this. I cannot do this. Not again, no, not again. Had Rod paced around in confusion and disbelief, thinking, okay, her period is late. Of course it is. Everybody knows that's what happens when you, well, you know. Is it possible Rod was not upset about the period or lack thereof or even the prospects of a baby? Is it possible that he was more worried about his prospects with the most beautiful woman in Canton suddenly slipping through his fingers before his own eyes? Had he said, okay, wait, I'm sorry. I'll do anything. Anything. What do you want me to do? What I want is to not be pregnant. What I want is for this to never happen again. Had he promised, okay, we will take care of it. We'll be more careful next time. We will never let this happen again, I promise, I swear, just don't. Don't what? Don't what? Had Rod paused at that point? With a sudden realization and asked Donna with wide eyes. Arms thrown out at his side. Does this mean we cannot have sex anymore? 
Had his mind raced as he tripped over one of Justine's toys lashing out? Had he said if this was my child, I'd punish her for misbehaving? Would he never let her get away with throwing these tantrums if it was up to him? How'd he shouted, you need to punish her? Had Donna cried at these words? Had she found a crack in the threshold? Was the darkness spilling in once again? Was Donna's new world flooding with grief? Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at SpoonRiverGothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.